stories are just variants of the same story. Good beats evil, cowboys and Indians, prophets and laws. This story has been told a thousand million times, and the ubiquity of it is what I would call a great tragedy. A tragedy because of the consequences it has had on our imagination. The Brilliant Podcast is an attempt to tell different kinds of stories, ones with complex moral plays, ones that aren't so clearly stories, and ones that are of human size. Our motivation to tell these tales is a desire to see a proliferation of different stories, and not just the simple morality plays of popular culture, or the inverted, but otherwise identical, stories of the radical milieu. We believe that a world of free people is possible. We call these people the people who are in active pursuit of a free world, the brilliant, because they're impossible to ignore and yet cannot be seen, especially in a world that is dull and gray. I'm your host, Eric Horn joined by co-host Bellamy, and in the background, our sound engineer, Roy Burton, and now the news. And one day I came in, and a woman who had lost a child was talking to a robot in the shape of a baby seal. It seemed to be looking in her eyes. It seemed to be following the conversation. It comforted her. And many people found this amazing. So I'm going to talk to you about you and how you can be brilliant every single day. So the first news story topic we're going to talk about is one of the topics of the week that was on A News, which is anarchist parenting, and it definitely seems like an appropriate one to follow the aging one because, of course, a huge part of that is taking on the nuclear family form. as is often the case in sort of parent role. And a lot of people in the getting older section were expressing what they felt was a total lack of support for um, people once they sort of do the normative breeding thing or that maybe they feel excluded from spaces or they can't get the kind of co-parenting that they wanted or envisioned or maybe even expressed. Imagined. <laughs> Imagined. Yeah. And... I, it's, I still see this as, uh, I was saying with the last topic, as being very derivative of the urban phenomenon, because I mean, the idea of co-parenting happening in the urban setting, when the urban setting just encourages so much atomization, it's like when I'm in my house and cooking dinner for myself, I'm not going to be thinking about you like running around chasing your kids in your apartment where I don't see it, I don't hear it, I have to get into a, a car or on a bicycle or into public transport to even get there, and... You know, I mean, it's the behind-closed-doors thing. It's hard to, to think about other people when you have all this uh, battery-cage-style housing. Yeah, I mean, just, just to start the conversation a little slower, <laughs> I think that the fact that we're two uh, uh, male-identified people who uh, have both consciously expressed a desire to not have children and not to be part of uh, child-rearing uh, does inform our particular perspectives on this. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with your comment about, about the city, but I also think that just to talk about it from a sort of a, a little smaller scale, I, I really ascribe the, the drama that I feel about children to, um, to, to the single family dwelling. Mm-hmm. The fact that in most cities, most people who don't live in box like apartments live in houses that are designed for nuclear families. Right. There's a master bedroom and right. then all the small bedrooms are for the kids. And, um, and so that's, that, you know, that, that invites a certain sort of structure in terms of how people behave with one another. Mm-hmm. And by and large, in most group houses that, that I've experienced, 
whoever it is that lives in the in the master bedroom tends to be the person who is seen as the as the house mom or dad yeah and and these sort of structural relationships you know you, you can't just sort of point to them and go and and and, and say this is why and ha 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 and I, now I figured every aspect of this relationship out, but um, but there is something there that that, that feels important to me. Mm-hmm. Wait, I'm sorry. Are you, are you saying I was I was overstating position by talking about the architectural aspect, or no? I, I'm 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 just starting a little slower because ah. I, I I feel like there's You're a some position. Well, I, I want to give credit where it's due, and and there are some people in the, and especially I'd point to the Midwest. One of the few places where the, the Midwest is sort of like ahead of the coasts is around this question. Um, if you go to events and, and sort of see the activity that happens in a couple different cities in the Midwest, you actually see people who have fully, who have insisted on full integration of children into anarchist activities. Yeah, I, did. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, I mean, infamously, the well, I, I'm not going to name the, name the towns, but the, the youth members of these communities are fully integrated members. They're absolutely involved. Um, you know, in in different ways, and and blah 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 blah. But but um, it's hard to look at that and say these aren't models for how people could behave if basically some extremely stubborn people lived in those towns. And the problem is that the only way in which you can sort of be an anarchist parent, as these Midwestern Midwesterners demonstrate, is by having extremely dedicated parents to this particular project of integrating the children into into the broader milieu. And and basically, until we do this more generally, we continue to be a youth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we were talking about the tragedy of that. I mean, I absolutely believe that people, well, many of the worst behaviors come out when you have peer age groups. As far as the competitiveness, the weird kind of sex-oriented behavior, and all that kind of stuff that we went through. Um, what was it two weeks ago when yeah. we talked about that? And so, what I mean. I guess there's certain obvious things where you expect like there's going to be uh, anarchist organized childcare and that kind of thing. What, I mean, is it, what is, can you talk about the specifics at all? I think probably a lot of people would be curious about that. Yeah. I, maybe at some point we can organize an interview with someone, yeah, someone who's okay. involved in that, in that sort of thing. Cause I, I'm sure that they'd love to talk about these topics at length. I'm not sure it's as simple as anarchist organized childcare. I think that no, I'm we, saying, I, I'm sure it's not that simple. Yeah. I, I think that the, in in the cases that I'm thinking of, the the bottom line is that it started out by a crew committing to each other and and following through with it, mm-hmm. and that's and in the Midwest this is a bit more plausible because uh, because you can anticipate that people who are in their mid twenties making these decisions are probably going to be around in ten years. Right. Whereas obviously in the Bay Area, you, you, can't, you, you can't predict that at all, right? You, you mostly predict that people are here to make their money or sow their oats or figure out who they are, and then they go back. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the sort of traditional model. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, but the parenting thing in the context of, that, of this thread seems to have taken a, a really nasty uh, a tenor that I'm, I, I don't know, I'm a little puzzled by. I mean, maybe it's defensiveness or... The sense of being, people being attacked, but um, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I I just feel like similar to drug use, there are certain decisions that people make that have a lot of consequences to them, and so I'm not exactly sure if you make the sort of a decision that you shouldn't suffer for the consequences of it. <laughs> like, like uh. you, know, you know, like if you're a pothead, you're like that has a lot of consequences. And the fact that people might make fun of you because you're a little slow on the draw or, or, you know, because your memory is bad or, or whatever, like you got, like you got the pie, eat the crust. And, uh, and there's, so there's something to me about parenting where it does really seem to bring out the rage in a lot of people where they just hate, they hate the, the assertions that because they're parents, they're becoming more conservative or, or, um, they're, they're sort of like mainstreaming or something. And, and I'm, I'm just not sure that's not accurate enough for, for you know, the use in a, in a comment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, as you, you uh, sort of positioned me at the beginning there, and to me, the decision, I mean, I, I actually got a vasectomy because I wanted to really, I guess, go for it or something. Um, wanted to and, commit. Wanted <laughs> to commit biologically. And to me, it was completely at this 
self-perception of if I have a kid, I'm not going to be able to have the kind of anarchist-oriented life that I want. I mean, it was, seemed really straightforward to me, and I was only uh, 23, 24. I just turned 24 at the time. And um, how much drama did they make you go through to to get it at that age? Yeah, quite a bit actually. Um, Counselor session. Yeah, yeah, and it was. They didn't even warn me about it. Uh, I scheduled the surgery and then went to the hospital. They checked in. And then uh, they said, okay, you know, you're going to go to the operating room in just 15 minutes or something like that. And then I started to go to the operating room, and then all of a sudden someone came up. And I was in a, a foreign country at the time, so I couldn't understand the conversation. But someone came up. They talked to each other for a minute. And then the person who came up said, actually, you need to come with me. <laughs> and I had to sit down with, with a doctor who said, do you understand the consequences of this surgery? And I said, yes, that's why I'm getting it. <laughs> and then they tried to convince me to... Um, freeze some of my sperm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I just kept saying, no, no, no. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. And, uh, they said I was the youngest person at the, at the hospital to ever have it. Um, and so, yeah, when I see these kinds of, as you were saying, people getting upset saying like, what you think just because, um, a parent that I've capitulated to commodity society more, or you know, I'm, I'm reproducing capitalism more. And I, don't know what these people's lives look like, but it, for me, it was impossible not to see myself making all kinds of compromises. I mean, if if you, unless you have that kind of amazing community support that it, seemingly some of these people in the Midwest might have, I mean, I couldn't see myself having the time and energy to do homeschooling. So that would mean I'd have to send the kids to school. And that, to me, that would be a fucking tragedy. I would feel horrible about that. And, uh, you know, and that's, and I would have to, I definitely wouldn't be able to have the sort of job lifestyle that I have where I have a lot of leeway because I'm willing to be a fucking cheapskate and do all kinds of different things to avoid that. But if I have a kid, I'm not going to do that. I mean, so it seems almost inevitable, inevitable to me, unless you really fucking have this intentional community situation going on, which I'm not sure it's great. Yeah, my only problem with that argument, and the, the main reason why I don't make it myself anymore, although I did when I was younger, is I, I have a lot of sympathy. Like, there's a similarity between this conversation and that conversation about veganism. Veganism, if you were not a vegan and you were prior to vegetarianism, you're just treating veganism as someone who's, who's eaten a traditional American diet up till that point, seems like a big pain in the ass. It, it totally transforms how you experience the world veganism does and you can make this argument that like it's one of the few ways in which you can practice authentic anti-authoritarian kindness in the world mm -hmm. and so um so these are these arguments about consistency sometimes are about lifestyle choices which ultimately we, you and i have made very similar lifestyle choices in that we are concerned with our own happiness <laughs> and our own sort of you know achieving our own needs and all the rest. It's and, true. <laughs> yes. And, and, and we're doing that in lieu of anyone else. Like, like, uh, well, I, yeah, I had multiple relationships and because of this adamant unwillingness to budge from this issue. Yeah. And I've, I've been a bit perhaps more ambivalent about uh, this question. Mm -hmm. When I was a teenager, I grew up in the Midwest where, Contraception wasn't really like uh, in vogue, <laughs> and, and uh, <laughs> was very involved in her life. But she had a family, and she actually wasn't that excited about it. Like, like she more or less had kids because her partner really, really wanted them. Um, and and so the end of her life would have been a great there would have been a great sadness there if it weren't for her family a great loneliness because she spent 20 years watching her friends die off one by one. And there's something here that is this extremely dangerous part of this conversation, which basically says, sure, don't have kids, be wild and free. But at some point you're going to be lonely and broke. <laughs> and what's your, what's your plan about that? Which is actually, I'm not saying that mo that anarchist parents are you know just hatching kids so that they can p pay the bills later on in life, but there is something about uh, you know like for me becoming an anarchist was part of my story of breaking with with what came before me, breaking with with quote unquote family, 
And so if I've broken with a family that I came from and I'm not replacing it with some sort of new family, which by and large, if it's not biological, fade, seem, seems to fade away for, for most of us, what do I have to fill in the gaps, which there are definitely going to be, because I don't want to work 40 hours a week for the rest of my life and then retire and live on a pension. Um, so there is, there is a hardness to this question that very few of us face who don't have children because it's still 20 years in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, that's uh, meaning what you're saying. In order to start catching kids to be taken care of, obviously there's the economic function that the family plays now, Absolutely. And, and arguably in, in similar forms at different uh, times and places. And yeah, that's something I think about. Uh, and I suppose I have fantasies that my intentional community is going to work out really well, mm-hmm. and those people are going to sort of substitute that. But yeah, as, you, as you said it, huh? Yeah, you have no reason to not believe that that's going to work out. <laughs> <laughs> I know we're still going to come to the episode where you tell me how stupid I am for all these reasons. Um, and then uh, I suppose I've always imagined that I would uh, just, if I became old and broke and lonely, I'd... Uh, commit suicide in some explosive way and that's how it's all that problem but uh, again that's something that might be a lot harder than I think yeah for sure and uh, yeah it's a it's definitely a real thing and um, I can think of a lot of current anarchists who are in a great deal of pain who are not making those dramatic types of decisions they're instead going out with a whimper not with a bat (laughs) I mean this comes back to what my uh, father likes to tell me which is that I, I always think i'm different from everyone but i'm not and uh yeah we'll see i don't know as long as, long as i'm different from him it's okay <laughs> yeah well the other news story that we're going to talk about this week is this brand new revelation that just came out um ak press sort of sketched it out uh perhaps for the seeming obligation <clears throat> that uh, there have been rumors and in, in their circles to talk about it but it appears that Michael Schmidt, the co-author of Black Flame, has been outed as a um, long-standing white nationalist. And so they're they're sort of playing um, uh, humble pie before the essay that's probably going to come out in the next couple of weeks that details all the information of Michael's associations and and sort of their, their political trajectory. Um, before all that happens, uh, AK basically did a did a what is it called a mea culpa yeah. and um, uh, announced that they've discontinued the next book that they were going to publish with Michael and they have put out of print. Uh, which is a funny way of saying they're going to sell the copies they have, but uh, not reprint it. <laughs> um, uh, Michael's last books. And so I, I will be fascinated to see uh, if Black Flame is one of the books that they actually put out of print. Yeah, anyways, an interesting accusation, and uh, there's a couple things I have to say about it, but your thoughts. Well, I, I was actually going to say maybe you should talk a little bit about what what kinds of things he's written about for some people who like me might not have read his shit. Yeah. I mean the, the, the main book that he wrote uh, with this uh, Lucian fan sant or something up, we should look it up um, is this book black flame. And, and uh, we'll, we'll just, we'll speak operationally about black flame and then we'll talk about the context that black flame lives in. But at the heart of black flame is an assertion that anarcho-syndicalism is the only true type of anarchism. And so there's been an A-News troll for years who sort of repeated that line ad nauseum. But but at the heart of Black Flame, it basically goes through Proudhon and any of sort of the, the things that have filtered out of Proudhon. It goes to Stirner, and it goes to sort of the individualists and basically asserts that these are not anarchist traditions. And it sort of uses... I mean, it, it doesn't exactly use like a mathematical formula to do this work, but absolutely that's the, po- the political goal is to say that only class struggle anarchism qualifies with the term and everything else can be, you know, you can call yourself an individualist and that's fine. But as soon as you call yourself an anarcho individualist, you all of a sudden are, are mm-hmm. you're forbidden to do that by the terms of the black flame, flame arrangement. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so, as you can imagine, lots of historians, lots of people have big conflicts with this. Um, from a from a little black card perspective, our strongest argument against this line of reasoning is in the introduction to disruptive elements. The editor of Disruptive Elements sort of asserts the history that's in Disruptive Elements as the example how full of shit the Black Flame people are. Hmm. Um, little Black Heart as a project in general could be seen as as sort of like the other side of that of that particular argument. Mm-hmm. So there is very much a way in which Black Flame is relevant to to what what it is that we do because it's basically so disagreeable mm-hmm. and um, and it, it basically is so like a, a book out of date. Mm-hmm. Like the book would have really made sense in the eighties and nineties as being sort of like that was a time when red versus green was a very common argument. Um, uh, now nowadays, I think it came out in like twenty ten or something. Nowadays, it just seems very bizarre to to make this argument that this extremely um, you know what we would call archaic form of anarchism is the only form of anarchism. Mm-hmm. And from my perspective, I would say that that their politics says that anarchism died in the fields of Catalonia. Catalonia uh, yeah. in 1937, mm-hmm. and that and that whatever it is that we do now either emulates that better or is nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the other response uh, besides the disruptive elements, I think of actually Bob Black's Chomsky on the Nod, where he he actually tries to argue that anarcho syndicalism is arguably a form of statism. Yeah, um, and as far as response to their statement in general, I was amused by how there was such an anticipation of criticism that, you know, basically, oh, maybe syndicalism and fascism aren't so far apart. You know, you think of Mussolini. Um, that uh, th- there was this immediate framing of, let's all remind ourselves that uh, crypto-fascists have also come from the ranks of egoist individualists, green anarchists, and nihilists. Before anyone, had, mm-hmm. <laughs> to my knowledge, even really said anything. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think when you, I mean, you, there is something about the gaze that wants the very organized society, the global society, the, you know, the, I mean, I can't think of a way that anarcho-syndicalism wouldn't be expansionistic. I mean, most arguments are that it actually is globalistic. It's a completely managed world. I, I, I'm not going to say that there's something inherently fascistic or fascist engendering about it I, that seems to um, go a bit far, but it's, I would say it's closer to, I mean, if you want a, an organized global society, you are closer to fascism than someone who wants a completely decentralized, non-global society, highly individualistic society. I mean, someone who wants a hunter-gatherer band society is very far from, or much farther from fascism than someone who wants an industrial council society. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to say in that regard. So, so I'll, I'll just speak to positions and and what it means to sort of take positions versus be more circumspect about these sort of questions. AK Press has sort of uh, it's 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 attempted to speak authoritatively uh, and responsibly to questions about what is anarchism and what isn't, and so. Um, because AK Press was founded by uh, anarcho-syndicalists and anarcho-communists, and their logo is still a, a red and black flag, you know it's clear what position they sort of originate from and, mm-hmm. and what they've been doing. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the last 10 years of their publishing, a lot of their material is not specifically anarcho-syndicalist, mm-hmm. but is instead uh, their histories of different things that have happened in the past. In other words, it's a, and some of them are fairly broad with the international scope. They've done two books in their 25-year history that have been extremely sectarian documents. The first one was Social Anarchism versus Lifestyle Anarchism, which obviously we can speak about at length. And Black Flame was their second one. Mm -hmm. Now, that's one of the... the, You made this point about the similarities or the the sort of commingles of... Yeah, I I don't want to overstate that. I'm just saying there's there's a very different orientation, right? I just want to give... AKA some credit or, or I want to ground the conversation in some mm-hmm. details that you probably don't know. In the pages of Adota, there were some big fights about this question about to what extent was there cross-pollination between anarcho-syndicalism and fascism. And, um, and the, the most, I, I will give this person credit and say the most evidentiary argument is that 
people who were syndicalists, not necessarily anarchists. There was quite a bit of cross-pollination between the syndicalists becoming fascists. Mm -hmm. There was only trace evidence of anarcho-syndicalists, in other words, Italian mm -hmm. anarcho-syndicalists becoming fascists. But uh, uh, the people who were the most incensed about this topic, obviously Bob Black on the side of, like, this shit happened. Mm -hmm. And then um, the main editor of the Anarchist FAQ, who is this person named Ian Mackay, mm -hmm. uh, he was very incensed about any sort of accusation that anarcho-syndicalists ever became fascists and basically said that it was fucked up to, to sort of make these assertions. Now, this is a person who is an anarcho-syndicalist, whose Anarchist FAQ is an anarcho-syndicalist document, which to some extent had two different political motivations. It had more than that, but, but two of the primary thrusts of the uh, FAQ is one, to defeat anarcho-capitalism as a form of mm -hmm. anarchism, mm -hmm. and two, to, to defeat in the individualist strains yeah. of anarchism. And so uh, so all the the egoist stuff within the FAQ is, is tepid at best. Yeah, I read it. <laughs> yeah, some of it's, yeah. Um, obviously that document was then published by AK Press. Mm -hmm. So arguably that's also a sectarian document. But I, I mentioned uh, AK's publishing of these two texts because they are still participating, even though they sort of style themselves as this voice of, you know, responsible... Um, uh, you know, pedagogically true anarchism, sober, sober right? Uh, at the end of the day, they they absolutely have a dog in the fight, and and by styling themselves in the one way, but still playing to win a political fight, uh, they've done a very good job of of sort of convincing people that right anarchism is the sober, you know, methodological, mm -hmm. you know, programmatic approach. Yeah, to me, the question of did certain people who said they were one thing go and do this other thing seems irrelevant as far as I, that's why what I was trying to say before is it's to me, it's a question of how do you perceive the world? How do you imagine people living together? And what, to what extent is that a sort of authoritative or managerial or stewardship kind of gaze? And the, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, someone who, you know, like what was their name? Uh, Exile and Sadie, you know, it's, I don't really give a shit. Like, okay. Right. I mean, to me, all it is is, okay, they were just assholes. And it doesn't, to me, it, it just seems like a very ad hominem approach to... Yeah, a disavow the past. Mm -hmm. Well, that isn't necessarily like red anarchism at all. Right. Okay, the theme this week is conflict, and in that vein, we're going to talk about a couple different articles, or they're going to inform our discussion. We're going to talk about the Broken Teapot piece from a couple years back. We're going to talk about Wild Justice by Bob Black. We're going to talk a little bit about the context around Bashback, and uh, perhaps we're going to talk a little bit about what we see as current forms of uh, conflict me conflict process within within anarchist circles um, around labeling and excommunication. I guess the first question, which to me feels like a broad question, but maybe it isn't, uh, what's the goal of anarchist conflict? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to do a little bit of framing where, um, once again, I'm going to complain about dualism, where I think there's maybe in the sort of more crude or utopian perceptions of anarchy, there tends to be this association of anarchy with peace as opposed to the state with, with war. And I mean, you can see that as far back as Bakunin talking about how the humans are essentially good and um, the, the natural human behavior would be to 
basically get along, and then the state comes along and corrupts the human nature through its structural violence. I mean, mutual aid at its heart is about this very topic. Mm -hmm. And you can see it in things as recent as that annoying Ryan Harvey song, Peace, Justice, and Anarchy, where he's exactly picking up that kind of thing of without the state, things would be sweet and we'd all be getting along. And it annoys me when people try to talk about anarchism as this way of eliminating conflict or eliminating power. And um, Kevin Tucker, in his presentation at the Philly Book Fair last year, actually described anarchism as the uh, he said something like the effort to identify and eliminate power. And he was talking about the, the green anarchist critique has extended that by locating it in agriculture or domestication. And yeah, and so the idea of, I mean, like this idea of peace or the elimination of power, I can't stand that. And I, I really liked um, in uh, the Invisible Committees, to our friends, they actually talked about how you know, peace basically means total domination. And they actually quoted the talking heads, which I thought was really funny, but they didn't say that it was the talking heads. Heaven is a place where nothing ever happens. And uh, yeah, and I, I very much see the idea of peace or the absence of conflict is stasis or death. And I mean, Stirner and Nietzsche always talked about that one of the best things that they said, I think, was taking this very non-object-oriented view of beings, you know, rather than saying like, I'm an object or a subject and I can exert power or I can choose not to exert power. And, you know, I'm going to be a more peaceful person by not exerting power. I mean, they associated that with death basically. And that to be alive was to be this kind of constant exertion of power on the world. And Sterner talks about the bird and the flower and how they're, like, they're just using power to, or they are sort of an iteration of power itself. And when we we can't tell a person not to use force. They are force moving about in the world. Yeah, I think the modern reader uh, doesn't point to Stirner, especially to, for this conversation, or to Nietzsche, who, of course, is central to this conversation. Instead, people point to Foucault. Yeah, totally. And, to the, that's... and to the way in which power has been f sort of framed by Foucault as unavoidable, unassailable, mm -hmm. and, and to some extent that part of what Foucault represents out of the post-structuralist critique is that you can you can no longer sort of put a bumper sticker on the wall and say... For peace. Yeah. Or against power. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess, how do you deal with that from from this perspective, though, that you basically don't think that anarchists should be against power? Oh, right. Yeah, so this was a long-winded framing to say, to me, the question isn't about eliminating conflict or how do we reduce conflict or set up society in such a way where their conflict is minimized the question instead is okay let's recognize that conflict is inevitable or even desirable or it's just this incontrovertible fact of life and so rather than trying to shy away from it or avoid it, it like which i think is kind of what nonviolent communication is about more mm -hmm. or less uh, the, the question instead becomes how, how do we resolve conflict in a way that is meaningful, not depersonalizing, not um, mode or not uh, oriented around guilt and shame or you know, who's the bad guy and instead have meaningful conflict that enriches rather than annoys. Yeah. I want to come back around to your NVC comment. Cause I think that there's a way in which NVC gets blown off that I, that I don't think is true. Like yeah. I think it's, unfair by saying that uh, what you're talking about right now I often talk about in terms of the genocidal urge that comes out of uh, Christian cultures um, but that includes guilt and shame and it basically means that when you're confronted with something that really isn't comfortable in your worldview that the that the urge essentially is to destroy it mm -hmm. is, is to is to basically and then have peace afterwards right and then have yeah. peace afterwards no for sure yeah. I mean I I mean, for me, the story of North America is a story of how uncomfortable, you know, the, the, the savages were for the Christians. And, and so their their only resolution was to either, you know, asphyxiate them with the Christian culture or to, to destroy them. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, that, uh, and so there's, there's part of this feels a little bit like a word game. And so I think the, the game I'm playing with power. Well, I, I mean, 
I'm very I'm I'm friendly to to what you're saying. Like mm-hmm. I would even go so far as to say I, I pretty much agree with different words, but not very different words. But but there's something here that feels like um, perhaps pointing to like a greater anarchist problem that we we devote too much energy to sort of overloading these terms like people, not power, uh, from a problem-solving perspective that you want to solve, or just how do I treat this in a way that where I feel like my anarchism is appropriate in this context? Mm-hmm. We can talk about, I mean, I, I, yeah, distractions aside. Uh, so, yeah, so then I wanted to talk about a few ways that, as you outlined at the beginning, anarchists have presently and historically tried to, to work through conflict, yeah. and I'm not sure what we could talk about bashback. I wanted to say something about consensus, um, broken teapot. I mean, there's a lot in there. Where do you want to go? Yeah. I mean, why don't we talk about your example first and talk about consensus as a form of... of... Yeah. So I, uh, some time ago I lived in a cooperative house. It was not explicitly an an anarchist house, but there was that there were people who called themselves anarchists and there was generally an appreciation of those ideas. And, um, it became pretty clear living in the house that there, there was a, a couple where there was some intimate abuse happening. And to me, uh, like I picked up on the signs pretty quickly and I thought, okay, something needs to be done about this. And, you know, maybe we could talk about the, the principles orientation. You know, I, I felt a desire to do something. I grew up in a house where there was dysfunctional shit going on all the time. And I thought I'm not going to live in a situation like this again. And so my my partner actually was the, the first one to pick up on it. And so we tried to have a conversation with the person who's being abusive. And this is why I want to talk about consensus and process. This person was a long time, very consensus oriented, very meeting oriented, very process oriented person. And so to our surprise, they immediately said, you're right. I have this problem. Uh, this is something I've been working on. I would love your support in trying to become a healthy person, and which would kind of take it back. I expected, you know, de- denial, evasion, defensiveness. Yeah, it's something. And so then, you know, before I know it, we're like having a meeting about this, mm-hmm. and exper- you know, we're expressing feelings, we're using NBC type language and that kind of thing. And this person basically said, like, I, I would like to keep meeting with you to have accountability with you to my partner. And so, why don't we do this? once a month and just check in about this. Okay. And, um, and so I left somewhat bewildered and then gradually this person started doing all this social maneuvering in the house. And this person was trans had, uh, got a lot of, uh, sort of social capital out of talking about trans issues, talking about transphobia. This person, um, would cry during meetings, garnered all this sort of sympathy from people in the house. And before I know it, this, uh, person has really, uh, convince their partner to totally stop talking to my partner and me because uh, because it, we're transphobic or we're, we're against them. And, um, and we just had all these idiotic meetings and nothing ever happened. And there started to be almost like this uh, like Israel-Palestine situation where it's like, I'm going to keep having these meetings with you. So I know, you know, I'm accountable, but I'm going to keep <laughs> doing what I'm doing, this horrible shit. And uh, eventually, the, after I left the house, this person got the boot only through um, like a few people that I, I wasn't even really involved with, just like fucking threw them out. And that was the end of it. And so I wanted to just talk about the way that consensus, I think, is not really this uh, essentially anarchist and you know, neutral decision-making tool that it is popularly portrayed as. So there's a lot to unpack in what it is that you just said, because I actually... Uh, don't agree that this is an issue with consensus. I think I've always thought of consensus as being a different, like it can be a methodology that's used in decision-making or in, in conflict situations, but that by and large consensus is a decision-making method first and foremost. Um, uh, and the ways in which it plays out in group house situations is, is sort of a different conversation than whether or not it's a particularly good way to make decisions. Um, I think the point you make is interesting, but um, well, let me just say okay. one last thing. My 
My initial experience with Consensus was in the context of a document called the Red Docs that was produced by a collective called Groundwork Books that was one of the collective businesses ran out of the UCSD campus. I was part of the Che Cafe Collective, which was also part of the same group of, of, uh, of, of co consensus-run businesses. And, um, uh, and once every three months, each of the, our collective, every three months, took a day out to do what was called a clearing. And the clearing was the way in which uh, we dealt with uh, dis uh, conflicts rather than in our weekly consensus decision-making things. Mm -hmm. And clearing was supposed to be a thing that you did sort of separately from meetings and separately from process. And if it, that didn't work out, then you waited till the quarter and dealt with your issues in the context of the clearing. I mostly mention that because what we experience in most anarchist circles is not a process-based way. Like accountability sessions, as, as they're described, are usually the, the first thing you do in an accountability process is talk about what the process of that accountability process would be. The fact that that person that you're talking about framed the process to their benefit is because they were playing a sort of different kind of game. And, and you're saying consensus should be indicted with that. I, I would indict it with different things, for sure. Yeah, and I mean, it, what the part that I didn't get to was that there was, a, there was an actual consensus meeting where it was supposed to be decided whether they got the boot, basically. Mm -hmm. And this person had, a month or two prior, written and proposed and passed the pro how that process would look, nice. not specifically to them. And so what ended up happening was there was this kind of, I was losing my mind because there was this relentless meeting culture where meetings were happening. And rather than anything being done, it was just the meeting sort of served as a temporary catharsis for the fact that obviously this was a big problem. And this person who was a natural bureaucrat and natural emotional manipulator would just make sure that nothing ever really happened, but have the constant appearance of, look, I'm being accountable. I'm being accountable. And of course, nothing happened. They just get to keep staying in the house. There are different issues with consensus, which I, I think it's just it, it favors the sort of born bureaucrat who is very comfortable with public speaking, very comfortable with making proposals. I, I mean, I, to, I think I could actually be considered guilty in some ways of, of um, being this sort of meeting-oriented person in that house who was good at doing those things and got a lot of shit done because I would come really prepared and make all these statements and then say, and just to address any concerns, I just hit this and this. And then by the end of it, people would be like, oh, okay. <laughs> so. Yeah, again, at this point in my life, I'm much more of a f sort of fan, if I am a fan of anything, of a formal consensus where one of the one of the at the heart of formal consensus is this idea that there's a mission for your project and basically at the end of the day if you have disagreements as a circle of people you reflect on the on the mission so for instance in the case of the J cafe the mission was to provide cheap healthy eats to the student body and mm -hmm. and to uh to be a, a venue for, for cultural events. And so at the end of the day, like I want to kick you out, is that helping or hurting or is your presence helping or hurting the, the mission of the, of the collective tends to be a type of framing that most consensus based groups do not ever do. Yeah. That because, was because, consensus. yeah, because basically the, that conversation is a real difficult one to have. Mm -hmm. And so, so what ends up happening in informal consensus is the person who is the most talented at bureaucratic reasoning and and perhaps the most charismatic tends to run roughshod over a lot of people's shit because their motivations never expressed out loud. Let's say in this case, their motivation is to stay in the house paying cheapish rent as long as possible. No rent, actually. <laughs> right. And so yeah. and so that's a very common way to game the system mm -hmm. where the, the mission of what it is that we're trying to accomplish changes all the time. And so to me, this isn't an indictment on consensus. It's an indictment on, the, on the, the fact that most anarchists at the end of the day don't want to talk about politics because what that person performed was politics in a field of people who are unprepared to, to be fighting on those terms. And this is why for me, the, quite, the first question of conflict is what's your goal? Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I, th I think it's true that it, what I'm talking about is more uh, the way that it manifests itself inadequately rather than attacking the process itself. Um, what I would say about the process itself is just that it, 
some criticisms would be the, the born bureaucrat or the um, the fact that it's an inherently sort of conservative method of decision making that it tends to it make it's very easy for things to stay the same rather than change or things like that. Well, so let me just interrogate you uh, from a different direction, and this really dovetails nicely with talking about uh, broken teapot. In most situations where you see something like domestic violence happening, on the one hand, it feels totally appropriate to intervene. On the other hand, what's your goal? Mm -hmm. Because you're saying there's a... I mean, my... (laughs) The way I've seen it play out in my life is that uh, there's almost nothing that people on the outside can do. And... Absolutely. Yeah. And... uh, So then what's your goal? I mean, there was... (sighs) I was very interested in helping this this person. However, uh, I knew that there were serious... I wasn't so naive as not to recognize that there were very serious limits to what I could do, because I actually had done domestic violence counseling before, and um, as a counselor, and knew that basically almost the only thing you can do is just try to be a good friend and support that person, which eventually became impossible because uh, their partner maneuvered it in such a way that I, it was almost impossible for me to actually have one-on-one conversations with that person just because of the kind of positioning that was going on. And so at a certain point, I just wanted this fucking person out of the house because they were also a terrible, terrible housemate for a number of reasons, not just because of uh, the, not just because of the abuse. But the, as soon as the, the goal, like what you're talking about is like feature creep has happened. Like in other words, on the one hand, what you wanted to do was this one thing, but then also you wanted to kick him out like that usually is a is a totally accurate way to describe what the political goals are that most anarchists express when they're in a situation of conflict. Like that, there, there's some clear motivation for why they're in the conflict. There aren't specific things that they're that they can sort of like accomplish. So, as an example, I I would if I were on the outside or, or was your friend talking to you in this situation, I would say, what's going to happen for sure is you're going to lose some friends. And if they have any strong friends or supporters in the house, you're going to lose them as friends also. Mm-hmm. You know, like, in other words, the unforeseen consequences are usually the things that are the, for sure going to happen, and the, and the stated goals maybe are going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, to speak about this in, in a uh, different context, I am, um, so I'm a, a child of the 70s, and around 1976, 77, my mother was in a, a serious fight with her boyfriend, and part of the fight involved him locking her out of the house where we both lived. Mm-hmm. And um, so she tried to climb in a window, and she uh, and he saw her climb in the window and punched her in the face. And um, and so she had a plan, right? Like in other words, this happened. Like broke her nose. She had two black eyes. Like he, he was a really big guy. So we then packed up our stuff and moved to a, a battered women's home. Mm-hmm. It was anonymous from him. He couldn't find us. Right. And we stayed there for six months or so. It was a totally part of town I'd never been in before. And um, uh, and that's an example of sort of like, like why people find anarchist solutions to a lot of these sorts of problems to be really inadequate. Like at the end of the day, she, she had this apparatus, this biopower apparatus that, that, that provided us solutions to problems, but they weren't real solutions, right? They were just partial solutions. But if you look at that as a partial solution compared to sort of talking therapy that ends up in happening in group houses, yeah. I mean, at this point, I know what, which one I prefer, mostly because, but that's mostly because I had so much distrust for what that circle of people in the house is going to perform, because I just don't know them in, in, a, in a way that, at the very least, me and my mother escaped this really bad situation. And 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 so anyways, I it speaks to this point about, about conflict and, like, really having a lot of clarity around what you want mm-hmm. before you get into a conflict. And, it's, and it basically takes a lot of experience to get that. Mm-hmm. Should we return to your outline? <laughs> um. And th- this is one of the things I love to work in Teapot, is it really problematized these discussions yeah, in so ways that I really liked. Yeah, there are, there are so many good things about that piece, actually. I mean, just breaking down the uh, 
it's interesting to, to so they spend a lot of time breaking down the abuser survivor dichotomy and saying it's it's not so black and white and i think that's absolutely true that relationships are always more complicated than that what's interesting about it was this person that i was talking about would play that card all the time yeah, and say well you know it's not and so i understand that the reaction has been to say no it really fucking is because abusers will almost always play that card yeah and, for sure but then yeah, the, you, it's, it's very dangerous <laughs> Well, but this is this is again why I why I go back to to sort of like not talking about the situ the situation itself, and then instead talk about sort of like a first principles sort of approach. Not because I think first principles are just so fucking important, but because when you're dealing with interpersonal relationships, if you don't come in pretty clearly armed with what you want out of the situation, it gets fucked up. You mean like like first principles could have been. These are things we want in the house, and these are not. And otherwise, yeah, yeah. And and like, example, like I mentioned, a common result of the conflict being that you have to leave the house. I. It so happened that I was planning on leaving the house anyway for a completely unrelated situation, but I was fucking ready to get out of that house when I left. Right, and and, and that part of why a lot of the relationships that happen in urban situations tend to be so. They're, you know, they're frictionless, mm -hmm. and this is, and you're basically describing what the details of how that frictionlessness happens. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I was absolutely doing the kind of urban and liquid modernity thing of just saying, you know, I can leave, and I'm so fucking sick of the situation. That's a nice catchphrase. Liquid modernity. That's, <laughs> it's an established term. By whom? I don't know, but I know it, it refers to just what we're talking about with this sort of um, the social fabric. Everything is so transitive in modern world where relationships, the frictionlessness that you're talking about, relationships, living situations, jobs, everything is you know, ready to go at any moment, and that's the expectation, and death of community, and so forth. Cool. So we're actually an hour in. I know. Um, do you want to? I mean, conflict is a thing we can talk about. Part two, part three, part four. I'm not sure we're going to do it immediately, but mm -hmm. obviously, this is an incredibly rich topic. Yeah. we have tons of stuff we haven't talked about in this in the context of this. And uh, is there anything you want to wrap up with? No, I think we could. Yeah, it would be interesting to maybe pick it up in a future episode, yeah, or maybe even next week. Sure. <laughs>